Good afternoon, it's 1.06pm and you're tuned in to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. Um, we'll be unpacking some of the top news stories from uh, around the country and around the continent. Now I'm joined with a very, very esteemed panel here. I'm very excited to have you all here. No one has ever used those that word in, <laughs> to describe us before. There's the Not shock and presence. awe on their faces. <laughs> Not in my presence. Um, so first up, we have uh, a guest, uh, uh, Daily Maverick contributor, uh, Gashwal Brooks. Um, welcome to the show. Perfect. And we have uh, Daily Maverick's senior Africa reporter, Simon Allison. And, nice and Daily Maverick journalist, Greg Nicholson. Welcome, welcome you all nice to the show. Nice to be back. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, Greg's no, no foreigner to the show here. Um, so first, I actually want to dig into what you've been working on, Simon. Um, a big news story that you, that you very recently broke about, um, what's, what's being seen as the, the first South African who seems to be a part of ISIS. And I mean, I'm first just really curious as to how you stumbled upon this, Simon. How, how do we get to knowing about this? It was, look, it's been a, it's been a long process, I think. Um, what I've realized, after sort of three or four years of, of doing this job, mm. is is a lot of journalism is about um, the work you've done before. Um, it, it's not really, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and decide to investigate a story and then find the leads, find the sources, etc. Mm. So I have been working on, you know, as as an Africa reporter, um, I've done a lot of work around Islamist groups in Africa. So a lot of stuff on Al-Shabaab, on Boko Haram, and increasingly over the last year or so on Islamic State and, and the impact that they may or may not be having in Africa. Um, and then I think because of, of, of that sort of body of work, people, um, started to take me a little bit more seriously, <laughs> um, when I, when it comes to these issues. And I've been able to make some contacts in, um, companies and, 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 think tanks and that kind of thing. Um, and then one of my contacts approached me and said that it's a, it's a, they're a private research organization and, and they research into terrorist groups specifically. And then they sell that research onto companies, interested individuals, mm-hmm. possibly other intelligence services. I don't know. But um, they contacted me and said, look, they've, they've been looking for ages at South Africa to see if there's any activity mm. sort of on their radar. Um, they haven't found any until now. And they found this guy called, who calls himself Abu Huraira, um, on Twitter and on Tumblr. So these were public accounts. This guy wow. wasn't hiding. Um, and they said, look, you know, if we were, do you want to follow it up? Um, and, and they, and they gave me the tip off, which was very kind of them. And then I followed it up with him. Um, there was the also guy on Twitter. A, first on Twitter and he completely ignored me. And then there was on his Tumblr account there there was a a username for a social messaging application. Um, no, not WhatsApp, but one of the other ones. So I just started messaging Tinder on that. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Grinder. <laughs> um, and I started messaging him on that, and it took a little while. Um, he wasn't really willing to be drawn out too much. He was very wary about who I was. Was I a Muslim? Why did I care? Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I didn't lie to him, so I said I, I wasn't a Muslim. Uh, but um, he said, so he wasn't too keen on, on talking to mm. me. And then eventually I, I wrote to him and said, look, you know I'm a journalist. Um, I will be writing about your social media accounts. And I want to make sure that 
it's a balanced portrayal that, that I provide both perspectives, you know, that, that as your job as a journalist is to, to make sure you get both sides of the story. And this is what I was using as a sort of bait. Um, please, if, if I don't get your side of the story, yeah. I can't publish your side of the story. Um, and then he came back and he said, okay, we can talk. Um, and then that's when I started the interview properly, uh, you know, asking him what life was like, why he deci- decided to do what he did, what his family thinks, um, where he thinks um, the whole ISIS thing is going, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was a really fascinating conversation. Wow! So we have we have somebody who was born and raised in South Africa, and he on his own accord traveled to Syria to join the ISIS. Is that the general? Basically, no. Of course, we have to take everything with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Okay. So we're very careful in the article to say, is this the first South African? Fighting for ISIS because we live in the age of Photoshop and VPNs where you can disguise your online identity. And it is certainly possible that, that someone could have, um, faked or forged all the sort of, um, online evidence and documentary evidence he provided. However, our assessment of the situation, looking at the information he gave us and also looking at, you know, so I pressed him on stuff. You know, I wanted him to give me his Turkish, his entry into, into Turkey. Mm. Um, his, his, his entry stamp and his passport, okay. you know, and he was able to give that to me within 15 minutes. Um, I think it would have been quite hard to fake to that. Fake to fake that. that. It doesn't doesn't show the, the sure. what he gave doesn't show any signs of being photoshopped, you know. So uh, that kind of quick response m- makes me think that the story he's telling is is legit. Um, so yeah, I, I you know I think we are looking at at one of. Um, the first South Africans in Syria fighting for the Islamic State, and not the only one. So he, Abu Huraira claims that there's another guy, Abu Bara, who's there with him. Mm. Since um, I published the story, I've been approached by a couple of people to say, hey, there's a few more. It's not just them. And last year, um, the Iraqi ambassador to South Africa, he came out and said, you know what, there's actually a bunch of South Africans in Syria and Iraq, um, and a bunch of them have died in battle already. And um, he was he was sort of blaming and castigating the government, saying, why aren't you doing something to stop them? Um, and everyone dismissed this poor Iraqi ambassador, uh, saying, no, you know, you're making making stuff up. You're just trying to get some attention. So, um, so yeah. Sam, did he tell you much about his motives for trying to join ISIS or, or that he claims he's joining ISIS and his life in South Africa? Why, why would a guy, you know, who just, you know, lives in, I don't know, let's say Joburg or Durban or wherever he's from, um, just up and go to Syria? It's a good question. Um, I asked him and what I got back was couched very much in religious language. So he, what he was saying was, this is the duty of every Muslim. Um, and my understanding of, of the way Islam works is, is that if there is a, a caliphate, um, which which has been declared in the Islamic State, so, so they've declared a caliphate. If there is a caliphate, it is every Muslim's duty to go and join that caliphate, um, to go and fight for that caliphate. So he was just responding to his religious duty to join the caliphate. Now, of course, the big problem here is, is this a real caliphate? And uh, I think by far the, the majority of Muslims do not believe that this caliphate is in any way legitimate. But this guy does, and that's what he was saying. Um, and that's a big part of what he was saying to other South African Muslims was, you have a duty to leave South Africa and come and fight with me because that is your religious obligation. 
Um, Simon, the one thing that I found extremely interesting about your article when reading through it, as I said, um, you know, earlier in, a, in our brief chat earlier, is that, I mean, looking at the story, looking at the evidence that you gathered, it seems like a legitimate story. However, in your article, throughout the article, you've been uh, placing what I can simply frame as, as disclaimers almost, mm-hmm. saying that, look, we, we can't confirm this and we can't confirm that. And obviously, I understand why mm-hmm. this is information you're getting from one source only. Uh, but... In as much as that is the case, have you picked up a lot of flack since then? I mean, I've, I know that yes. a number of people have been. Uh, I'm sure your phone has been ringing quite a bit. Since <laughs> <yesterday>. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, the the sort of flack has come in two main parts. Um, mm-hmm. One is why did you publish this when you can't be 100 percent accurate that, that that he is who he says he is, and okay. and it's it's a valid question. Um, and we grappled with it before we published it, and ultimately what we decided is that. Even if this guy is a hoaxer, right? Mm. If he is a hoaxer, it's an extremely elaborate hoax. Very and much so. he would have had to put a lot of time and effort and, and resources into it, which suggests that there may be a sustained or some kind of campaign um, to introduce Islamic State propaganda in South Africa, which is a, an important story in itself. Or this guy is um, a real loser. Or this guy is a real loser. <laughs> exactly. Too much time on his head. Exactly. Um, and if he's not a hoaxer, I mean, the the public interest benefit of, of revealing what he's saying, I, I think, is self-evident. Because if we don't know about the threat of ISIS propaganda in South Africa, then we can't defend ourselves against it. And certainly in my dealings with intelligence services about this, you know, I, I would you know, phone and ask for comment and, mm. and stuff. They, they had no idea what was going on, and they had didn't seem to have... That much interest, and, and that's been backed up by several other people dealing with it. This is not considered a big issue for um, state security agency. Mm. So I, I think, but by raising it, 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 it may it, it may push the issue a little bit higher up on the agenda. The the other um, c- c- critique that that we received was that we were doing. ISIS's propaganda for them. Mm. Um, we were just, you know, being used as like a as like a mouthpiece. Yeah. And I get that because you know. Without our article, however many people read our article wouldn't have read those words. But at the same time, those words were accompanied with quite strong um, alternative descriptions of what the Islamic State is really like. Exactly. Um, uh, how they treat women, how they treat opponents, the, the incredibly brutal um, means of punishment they use, such as crucifixion, etc. So I think anyone who'd read the whole article... Um, it, it, to me, it, I don't buy the propaganda piece. I, I think, I think if you if you read that article and you take away the Islamic State propaganda from mm-hmm. it only, you are always going to be taking away the Islamic State propaganda. But, but it's very simple. I mean, because then CNN is buying into the into the propaganda. Because I mean, every single time we see one of those horrible videos being released. Uh, we have a lengthy statement coming through from ISIS yeah. explaining why they're doing this. This guy's a Christian and we decided to crucify him. Mm. Or he's a Jordanian mm. pilot. He's a, he's the lowest of the low in terms of Islam and therefore we're going to set him alight. So, uh, you know, I don't necessarily get that critique in itself. Mm. Um, my, my final one on this is, I mean, has there been backlash where people are saying, but hang on, you're just spreading rumor. You're just, um, you know, you're taking this a bit too far. This is sensationalist. Uh, you, you, you fear mongering. Has any of that come up? Uh, a couple of times, yes. Um, but again, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think that, that the story is in the public interest. And, and I feel pretty comfortable with that at the end of the day. Simon, so, 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 I mean, we saw recently a story where, where the South African government, and I think it was a minister, 
condemned South African mercenaries who have gone to Nigeria to train um, the Nigerian army to fight Boko Haram, which actually is, you'd think seems like a good cause. <laughs> they, they, they don't seem to be, you know, Boko Haram uh, uh, don't, don't seem to be the nicest sort of guys, and the Nigerian army seem to need help. Um, but they were condemned for that. And then the government seems to be so quiet on, on the idea of South Africans going to join ISIS. Why do you think there's a, there's a gap in difference? Is it just because it's confirmed that South African mercenaries have gone to Nigeria? I, th- I think, yeah, I think that, that is the, the, pro- what the, the Nigerian story, it was confirmed that there were South African mercenaries there, and then the government condemned it. Um, this one, the government doesn't know anything about it themselves. Having said that, they did still condemn the possibility of anyone joining ISIS. They were very clear that, that any, anyone going to Syria to fight for ISIS or anyone else, um, is violating the law and will be prosecuted. Because it's illegal under South African law to get involved Completely in other, illegal. Any other illegal, countries. Which is parts, ironic right? because we are one of the, you know, I think we're the greatest exporter of mercenaries mm. in the world. <laughs> but it is still highly illegal. Hmm. <laughs> Contractors, we call them now. <laughs> They're oh. security guards, not yeah, security, security guards. guards. <laughs> there we go. And they sometimes shoot at each other. <laughs> um, Simon, you mentioned that Abu Raya um, had some kind of call to action in his social media accounts and in your conversations with him. Um, do you think his message might appeal to any maybe young or, or naive people who maybe are, are looking for something to get involved in or looking to get behind a cause like ISIS? Look, the only thing we have to go on on this is is how effective ISIS propaganda has been in other countries. Yeah. And if you look at the numbers of foreign fighters that have come from Europe, come from North America, come from other countries in the Middle East. We're talking tens of thousands of foreign fighters who have bought into this propaganda. So, yes, I don't see why South Africa is so different that we're not going to see another example of someone trying to join them. Having said that, we must be careful not to, you know, overstate this point. You know, I'm thinking, you know, we're talking in the in in the in the ones or twos maybe fives or sixes. We're not talking in the hundreds and thousands. Yeah. Um, this isn't a existential crisis for the South African Muslim community because by and large, um, they are very moderate, very tolerant, and very well integrated into South African society. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, Simon, you've mentioned how successful ISIS has been at their sort of proper propaganda efforts. I mean, it's been hardly two years since we first heard of ISIS. And, and, and what are they doing differently? How have they been able to grow to such to such a force in such a short time? Well, it's one of the great, uh, the great ironies is that they have manipulated the modern technology that they hate to spread their message. You know, yeah. um, ISIS doesn't like the internet or radio or any of these things because they are deemed as, you know, Western and, and, and not traditional and far too modern. Um, but yet they have harnessed this technology as a weapon. So it's almost like they're using our own weapons against us. Uh. And it's quite extraordinary. And, and they have really done well on social media and um, these, these videos. You know, Gershwin mentioned them. Talk, talking yeah. about those videos, I mean, the thing that I find extremely surprising about the videos is that there's a production quality to them. In other words, Ooh. it is a production that's put together. It's very professional. Uh, you know, and, and, and the sad thing is, I mean, I think it was the um, Jordanian pilot when he was set to light. There were still negotiations going on. Turns out that this guy had probably already been killed while negotiations yeah. were going on. So they don't negotiate in good faith. No. Um, the Japanese journalist, uh, at least one of those beheadings had happened before uh, negotiations had reached a point, uh, you know, a stalemate point. I know that the Japanese government was extremely hard and said, no, we're not going to negotiate, you know, on your terms. Yeah. But the point is, is that 
so much effort goes into these videos that they come out a month after the event, which tells you something. Uh, these guys are really good at spreading a message. Absolutely. On that on that note, um, that the most recent video, one of them, was the 21 Libyans. No, sorry, there were 21 Egyptians who mm. were beheaded in Libya. Um, and they were beheaded simultaneously on a beach. Right? And it was, it was really graphic, horrible stuff. Um, one of my contacts is working on this now. And she says that she's pretty sure that it was shot against the green screen. So it wasn't shot at a beach. I've heard, I've heard of some of their other photos yeah. being taken against oh, green okay. screens as so, well. So, I mean, yeah. and, and imagine that, you know, and talk about production values. They've got someone who can manipulate CGI and green screens and all that kind of technology. That's crazy. Um, that's crazy. This is highly, highly skilled stuff. And it's good enough to fool most news agencies, you know. Um, Jihadi John, I mean, how much information were they able to extract from those videos? Yeah, of, exactly. Of, uh, you know, about Jihadi John, who he is, where he's from, yeah. based on his accent. I mean, there's a lot of intelligence that mm-hmm. goes into those videos, and I presume that is why now they're resorting to stuff like green screen. Yeah. Because uh, that way you can't sort of figure out where's the exact yeah. location, that's a good what is point, the height actually. of the guy. Oh, that makes true. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was... Uh, and the reason why I know so much about this stuff, a lot of late-night radio. <laughs> so, what, what does CNN you, you, cover? Yeah. <laughs> what does CNN... No, no, funny enough, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I'm extremely averse to the photos and the videos. Absolutely. Um, I fundamentally believe that, and then at least no one in this room uh, would do this. You're far too professional mm-hmm. for that. I can't stand people that would take the photos and the videos and share it via their social media pages. Because then you become ISIS and you spreading their message, and it's horrible. It's, it's, it's horrific. horrible. I mean, why would Even you? Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing chocolate. on my on my Twitter timeline the was the which which was the Jordanian pilot, the one who was set alight in a yeah. cage. Hmm? Just seeing just seeing the the still image of him in that cage with the fire coming up. It's horrific. It's absolutely absolutely horrific. So I mean, do you think some of this stuff? So with all these videos and things like that, could have. Could have this level and display of um, such graphic violence um, contributed to to the South African um, going you know, going to join ISIS? If he did, it is a big part of their their message. So when about two years ago, when when so ISIS is an offshoot of Al Qaeda, yeah. um, roughly it's very complicated, but mm. you know they, they they started in roughly the same place, um, and then eventually Al Qaeda essentially excommunicated ISIS. They uh, and. Zahiri, the Al-Qaeda leader, wrote a letter to the ISIS leader saying, you guys are too barbaric, you are too brutal, Jeez. and your brutality is going to hurt the cause. He, you know, he tried to phrase it in very practical, you know, mm. there's going to be a counter, uh, a counter effect, a counterproductive, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, and ISIS said, no, this is the way, and they carried on, and you know what, they were right. That's the horrific thing. Since they decided that, since they broke with Al-Qaeda, since they embraced extreme violence, extreme, extremely graphic and extremely public violence, they have gone from strength to strength, not only where they live, where, where they are based, but um, in lots of places across the world. Mm. Um, and it's quite horrendous. And you start wondering about humanity. Mm. Um, is there something mm. about this violence that, that we are inherently attracted to? Just one question. I mean, and, and this is a question I've heard many people asking. Many analysts have answered on this one. Maybe I'm putting you in a bit of a tough spot here, Simon. But um, we see them in Libya, uh, or at least it's you know green screen or no green screen. Those were 21 Egyptian mm-hmm. Coptic Christians still on the African continent. We have groups like Boko Haram uh, and Al Shabab. Um, Boko Haram more particularly saying that, hey, you know what, we welcome ISIS and we're going to lend a helping hand. Yeah. Uh, you have um, Al-Shabaab in East Africa saying that, you know what, we're affiliated to Al-Qaeda. 
Um, I don't know whether they would necessarily want to affiliate themselves with, with um, ISIS more specifically. But do you think that we're going to see a greater, greater spread and infiltration of ISIS across the African continent, especially based on the fact that we're having so much insecurity and instability across the continent at the moment? In short, yes. And the reason for that, um, the, the way to think of about terrorist groups expanding is, is not like ISIS itself sending a bunch of ISIS members to Libya mm. and they're sort of taking over and Libya becomes part of its territory. That's not, mm. That isn't how it works. How it works is a militia group in Libya says, you know what? We're going to see if we can make a partnership with, with ISIS, almost like a franchise operation. You know, some people set up KFCs. Some people set up a <laughs> ISIS Ter- affiliate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm in the KFC front personally, okay. but uh, <laughs> and so, so what what happened in Libya was was an Islamist I think a couple of Islamist militias there they've donned the sort of cloak of ISIS okay. I mean it works for them both because this like small irrelevant militia group now can say ah oh, we are ISIS you know and mm. they become much more dangerous much more threatening and then ISIS can say ah, we're now in Libya and we weren't there before. So they become much more dangerous and much more threatening. So it's, it's like a win-win for everyone. But really, the biggest impact it's going to have, even with people... So Al-Shabaab, I think it's unlikely that they're going to go with ISIS at any point because they, mm. they're pretty solid in there with Al-Qaeda and, and it's hard to switch between the two. Nonetheless, Al-Shabaab is going to start copying ISIS's tactics. And that's the real problem we have is that ISIS's tactics have been so incredibly effective that terror groups everywhere, no matter their affiliation, are going to start mm. mimicking them. And we saw this recently. Al-Shabaab released a 67-minute-long video um, in which they threatened to bomb two malls in London, one mall in New York, mm. a mall somewhere else. Wait, no, wait, wait. Um, so Al-Shabaab is now going international as well. They're Al-Shabaab are now going – Al-Shabaab, what Al-Shabaab are doing is they're using the same propaganda tools um, – and they could well, and I think part of that will be to start doing more graphic, more brutal kind of attacks captured on camera um, to then export to the world to make yourself look a lot bigger and scarier. Si- Simon, please explain to me how Boko Haram plays into this on their on their what's happening locally in Nigeria. How does Boko Haram join? So Boko Haram, is interesting. Yeah, um, Boko Haram are very much rooted in the local politics Absolutely. of that region, in the history of that region. Um, and they well, they were quite slow to tap into the whole global jihadi network. And even now, what they've said is they've said um, that they have declared their own territory, which they control in northeastern Nigeria, and it's the size of Belgium or something. I mean, we're talking, we're talking big area. Um, they, at the same time, what they've done is is they've declared that to be. It's quite technical. They've said it is part of an Islamic caliphate. Okay. Okay. Now, there is only one Islamic caliphate at the moment in operation, and that is the ISIS caliphate. Yet, Boko Haram has not pledged Baya, which is official allegiance, to Baghdadi, who is the head, who is the caliph. And that's what you have to do. You have to pledge allegiance to the individual himself. And that makes it one caliph. And then what that means is that once Boko Haram pledged allegiance, Boko Haram have to listen to anything Baghdadi says. Mm. So the minute they pledge allegiance, they effectively cede control to the caliph himself, right? So what they're doing now is they're putting themselves in the ISIS orbit while keeping control of the the day-to-day operations. Um, Do you you think they'll ever pledge allegiance? They might. I think it depends on what ISIS can offer. So if, if ISIS is in a position, so in Libya, I think ISIS was in a position to say, we can help you with, um, weapons and funds, etc. Um, because the, the links between Libya and Syria are, are quite strong. Yeah. Mm. 
Nigeria is a different kettle of fish. That's a lot further away, um, a lot harder to get to. I think there's very little direct assistance that, that ISIS can actually offer. So until they can have a bigger carrot, I think we're unlikely to see a pledge of allegiance from Boko Haram. Well, so what we're seeing basically is we're seeing ISIS positioning themselves as the extreme of the extremists and setting the pace in that direction. Exactly. And also using propaganda. <laughs> the same way that yeah. the, the Republican Tea Party pulls everyone else right wing, yeah. ISIS is pulling all the terrorist organizations <laughs> even further. Republican Tea know? Party. Interesting one there. Let's just start on the Tea Party. <laughs> yeah, if we want to talk about extremists. <laughs> um, and, and I think one... Th- one thing that, that I've been really trying to grapple with is what you really brought up is, is how on earth does this play into the, to what we've been monitoring on the ground in Nigeria? I mean, you've been writing a lot about the, the local elections and Boko Haram. And I think in a, in its own vacuum, that, that's something that, that, that I feel sort of quote unquote made sense in the issues with the North and South and Boko Haram. And when you, and you bring ISIS into play and then Al-Shabaab is into play. Yeah, ISIS <laughs> just messes everything yeah, up for everyone. <laughs> Nigeria is hard the, enough to understand as it is. You know, the real problem we have now, so, so the Libyan government, what remains of it, you know, the tiny shell of a government in Tobruk, has appealed to the international community and said, we need weapons. We can't mm. fight these guys without weapons. And of course they can't, you know. Mm. ISIS is well armed. They're well equipped. The mm. ISIS groups in Libya, they, they, they have some serious stuff. Um, but the international community can't give them weapons because this government can't be trusted. And they can't know that, that, um, the weapons won't fall into the hands of ISIS. And same in Nigeria. No one wants to give Nigeria weapons because who knows what they're going to do with them. So we're in this re- real catch-22 where we have this problem, but we also have no one who has enough authority to deal mm. with the problem. But in Nigeria's case, doesn't that seem crazy considering it's the biggest economy on the whole continent? With a legitimate government in place. Well... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm, and, and, and they can't buy arms. Don't you think, though, that part of the problem, I mean, if you look at it, especially the issue of terrorism in, on the African continent, whether you're talking Libya, Nigeria, or East Africa, that the issue boils down to poor governance, that you're running a country and parts of that country you have no darn control over whatsoever. And then, I mean, really, I mean, uh, now we're turning back and we're looking at the African Union, we're looking at the UN, we're looking towards the US. And and let's be honest, uh, Greg, the moment you start flying in American fighter jets to, to take out ISIS, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, you, you, you know, you have your pick. Hmm. Then suddenly, oh, no, the West is trying to, mm. clo- uh, you know, colonize us again and, you know, stuff these guys. We don't like them, blah, blah, blah. I mean, hmm. that type of sentiment comes out. So what, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But then, but then in this case, we're not talking about um, a case like Libya where foreign troops or, you know, foreign planes sort of bombed the hell out of Libya. We're talking about just sending guns and things like that. Sure. Which still, still, if you give a whole bunch of weapons to Nigeria's army, it can number no, one. It, it could end up in the hands of um, Boko Haram, so, it? And, so then, ISIS, and then also they can commit their own atrocities. Most of the weapons that ISIS has, in American, Syria right? and Iraq, um, are American, mm. taken from the Iraqi army. So if if America hadn't armed the Iraqi army, ISIS would be a lot less strong than it is now. Mm. But at the same time, if they hadn't armed the Iraqi army, the government wouldn't have been able to have any control. Whatsoever. So I, it, it's look, I have no solutions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely none. You're the I look at, guy. Now. I look at this, this situation. Fix it now. I look yeah, at okay. the situation and I just think we're in we're in serious shit. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And we have I, seen some rumblings. I think Greg, you were saying earlier that New Zealand has sent some some some, oh, some it's, forces. It's, it's a hundred and fifty odd non-combative troops to train the Iraqi army, haven't they? New Ze- the Kiwis, the Kiwis are sending some Kiwis troops. Are getting, it's things must be really serious. If the Kiwis <laughs> yes, are getting right. it's it's right. hundred and fifty <laughs> non-combative troops. I mean, that's just symbolic. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering how, how long, how long have have other foreign Western forces been in Iraq as well as Afghanistan trying to train their local armies, and how how well has that gone? Now we get 150, 150 troops from New Zealand just trying to chip in and, and see what they can do. I, I'm not so confident it's going to make any sort of difference. What I'm starting to wonder is, is you know, we, we do tend to approach this problem through a, a very state-centric lens, you know. Boko Haram in Nigeria is a good example. So, so Nigeria, we, we think it's a country, so the government in Lagos must have full control over the whole country. Yeah. And if it doesn't, we've got to find a way to make sure they do. it does. So we got to, you know, they've got to go to, to war. They've got to, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not meant to be a one whole country. Maybe there should mm. be a separate state in northeastern Nigeria that, that operates mm. under different laws. Um, I mean, in East Africa, we saw that plain Sudan of are we trying to make, are we trying to force this to be one country? One country, exactly. And, uh, can, I, can I just yeah. ask one question? Because yeah. I'm, uh, you know, a very long time ago when I was a law student, and that's years ago. Yeah, I was many, a, many, I was many, a many, <laughs> many, alcoholic, <laughs> many alcoholic drinks later. I remember that there was this issue in terms of international law where secession is not necessarily the way to go. Where if you have a country, if borders have been drawn, so in other words, the borders that we inherited from the First World War going into the Second World War and after that need to stay that way. And it makes sense to some extent because if you come back to South Africa, there's a bunch of very interesting people that every now and again, every October, release red balloons and they feel that they need to have a state of their own. Yeah. Mm. So, so what I'm saying is if we're going to secede every single time, mm. then everyone can start up their own country. ISIS at the moment is trying to start up their own country. Mm. That's why it's called Islamic State. So what I'm saying is, is that in as much as that might seem to be the immediate solution, yeah. if you look at Sudan right now, mm, Sudan and right. South Sudan, yeah. it's still a mess. <laughs> it hasn't mm. worked, has it? It hasn't worked. So it's definitely not the way to – I do say that maybe, Mr. Goodluck, Jonathan, Jonathan Goodluck, that it's about time that you bolstered your army, got serious about governance, and actually said that, you know, at northeastern Nigeria is part of this country I'm in charge of. Mm. You, you can't sort of just, uh, you know, those people, shame in, you know, ah, 2,000 of them died today. Uh, vote me in I'll do something about it guys But until then Good luck Doesn't work like that <laughs> okay, I think final word Please <laughs> on Nigeria Before we go into the break Simon We have this Boko Haram issue But simultaneously Nigeria is trying to hold Their democratic elections So what what, what kind of situation Is the Nigerian government in? in, in, it's, in a, it's in a pickle Okay um, a Pickle Yeah <laughs> a pickle. Very delicate pickle um, I think that so, so they were meant to Have the elections On Valentine's Day 14th of February they delayed them by six weeks yeah. till March 28th to deal with the security situation as if an extra six weeks is going to make all the difference. But in that six weeks, we've seen all kinds of amazing victories for the Nigerian army. They've t- taken back towns. They've killed Ooh. hundreds of militants. Um, we don't know if that's true or not. And there's no one who can tell us if it's true or not because oh. there's no real journalism going on. In those areas because it's simply too dangerous. So what it seems now is, is the, the war against Boko Haram is actually a campaign tool, which is a really frightening thing because then what happens when the election is won? Absolutely. Then no one really cares about the war on Boko Haram anymore. And oh, one thing that was really interesting to me, I was speak, speaking to some businessmen at a, at a sort of investment forum um, last year, and I said, what what country would you most like to invest in if you had your own money? Yeah. You know, they all said Nigeria. Mm. You know, amazing growth, the GDPs, um, 
expanding the the market's huge yeah, growing like, but class. what about the what about the situation in the you know the security situation yeah. they're like it's, it's in the northeast it has no impact on lagos and that seems um, to be the government's perspective as well. The government's mm. perspective. It's too far from Lagos. Northeast, they can do whatever. Northeast, they they'll just you know, as long as not, not a political, it doesn't hurt their own immediate political prospects, then they don't need to deal with it. Wow. Okay, guys, we need to go into a break now. That's it for the first portion of our show. Um, we'll continue to monitor extremism uh, across the continent as well, with an eye on the upcoming Lesotho elections, the Nigerian elections, and I'm sure there'll be a lot to come in the coming weeks. Um, over the break, please make sure to tweet us at cliffcentral.com and at Daily Maverick. Um, see you in a bit. You're tuning into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, we are now going to bring things local and talk a bit about the, the, the state of, of, of politics in South Africa. Um, so just quickly to set the scene, at the end of the State of the Nation address, um, I think everybody was a bit in shock. So we had the fracas in parliament, we had, we had the, the cell phone jamming, we had... We had the quote-unquote waiters who came into parliament and politely escorted <laughs> members of the opposition out. So that's that's how we went to the to the Sona debate, um, and it's it's quite interesting how 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 things played out. Um, any any highlights or surprises from you guys from the Sona debate? Sort of the na- I think the the highlight of the debate for me, and I think yeah. a lot of people, yeah. has to be Zuma's reply. Yeah. Zuma was on the on the back foot after after what happened during the State of the Nation address, where the EFF got kicked out. No one listened to his speech. The whole focus was on EFF's eviction and police coming into the house and um, the signal jamming that that prevented journalists briefly doing their work. So it was all about controversy, all about what sort of looked to be um, um, South Africa moving towards being a security state. If we just take this example. Yeah. And then, and then, so, so during the debate, we had two days of opposition ANC and opposition MPs, um, particularly with the opposition MPs, really, really dig into Zuma. If we particularly look at Musi Maimani with his killer statements. Oh, yeah, he strong, was having a moment that, of glory. Yeah, that strong speech where he said, Zuma is a broken man, um, presiding over a broken society. It was pretty cutting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and meanwhile, the whole state security thing and the whole jamming thing is still rolling on. Zuma comes up for his, his uh, the State of the Nation debate reply on, I think it was last Thursday, and no one knows what he's going to say, no one knows whether he's going to hit back at anyone, no one knows what's going to happen. He comes up and he largely sort of almost clicked reset. He almost just 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 set things back to normal. All of a sudden, his speech took the took the heat really out of everything that happened over the last the last week, and he he acknowledged opposition leaders. Um, sort of looked like a gesture of reconciliation, but also, also just by him stepping up and acknowledging these guys, except for Musi Maimani, of course, which is sort of the one, the one issue. Um, even Julius Malema, he said, you know, it's great you could give a speech without having to yell and, you know, you know, create chaos because no one can hear you when you create chaos and things like that. Um, he acknowledged all the opposition leaders and, and really sort of stepped up as a statesman. And then I think at the moment when things changed was, when he was speaking to, he addressed a point raised by Peter Mulder, who's head of Freedom Front Plus. Yeah. Mulder had said in his reply that the ANC and Zuma um, are essentially scaring white people and Afrikaners out of the country yeah. and trying to blame South Africa's problems on apartheid and on them. 
Zuma then he went into a lengthy history lesson, going basically from from Jan van Riebeek's time, before wow. him even. Wow. It took like half an hour. He went on for so long, and he okay. schooled Mulder. Okay. He really did. <laughs> he, he, he just said, and he kept on saying, this is the facts. He just said, because he was saying, all the problems started when van Riebeek came. He was saying, we're not blaming you or anything like that, but yeah. we have to acknowledge history. The facts are the facts. And he said, all these things, people were chased off their land. There were the four trekkers who moved into, you know, here. We had the Boer Republics. We had all these sort of stuff. And all these things happened, and, and uh, African, black Africans were oppressed. And that created many problems. And and there, he just sort of laid it out flat. And he was enjoying himself. He was really lo- he was really loving it. And obviously, the Freedom Front Plus doesn't have a whole lot of supporters in the house. So, so every, everyone else was enjoying it. And I think that really gave him the confidence to just sort of take this, to sort of take the political situation at the moment, um, sort of by the horns, and stamp his authority on it. He actually looked like a statesman for once. I'm slightly worried. I, I, I think that we might have a president that's on lithium. I'll tell you what. <laughs> on day one, with, with the actual sonar, we saw the schoolyard bully. He was laughing and he was giggling while the waiters stormed mm. in yeah. uh, or walked in politely and, and beat everyone out of parliament, right? And then after that, we saw, you know, when you jump into a pool, a really cold pool on a hot day, and your testes receive. <laughs> you know that feeling that you get. Um, that that was day two, or that was the you know when when uh, Musi climbed into him, oh, yeah. when Julius climbed into him, when everyone basically climbed into him. And then day three, finally, he was he looked like a statesman. He and 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 in as much as people, but I'm I'm really concerned though that in as much as we enamored with him again, in as much as now we're worried about poison plots against him by his wife or his wives. What a story! Um, you know, <laughs> you know, in as much as now everyone's sort of forgotten about uh, the signal jamming, the police storming into the House of Parliament. I'm I'm really concerned about the fact that now we're enamored with this president and now everyone's sort of back to business. Yes, no, he makes sense. He is measured. He he answered and replied very well. Yeah. But the key point is he did all those things beforehand, guys. And it's something that I think we should not forget. And I think action needs to be taken for that. Because for me, it took the Constitution and chucked it out the window that day. And for me, that that is a real concern because we still have another four years of this administration but, left. But, but I, think, I think what we saw when Zuma gave his reply was – Perhaps why he was elected in the first place, you know, back, back, you know, in, in 2009 and why, why he won a Polokwane earlier than that is because when he does speak off the cuff and he speaks confidently, he is a very, very charismatic figure. Mm. And it certainly shouldn't wipe away any of the, the many wrongs he's accused of. Yeah. But you do, you got a sense on that day as to how he maintains his leadership and strength no, and power and how I think he can still be loved by so many people mm. despite the scandals that are continuing to swirl, continuing to swirl around him. Well, charisma is more powerful than policy. Um, or actions, I think. I think, you know, look at Barack Obama as a, as a good example of someone whose policies weren't, haven't actually been that much different to, to what came before. And yeah. yet he's Barack Obama and we love him because he can deliver a really fantastic speech. And Julius Malema, another great example of someone mm. whose policies are, are largely meaningless a lot of the time. Um, mm. but yet he can enthrall. Um, he, he, he can speak to people. And when Zuma gets into that, that stride, then suddenly everything he's done just recedes into the background. I get that. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I think that up until Sona, you know, there's been many complaints and many allegations and all kinds of nonsense going on. Let's be honest. There's rape allegations and this, that, and the yeah. other. And every now and again, people mention, I, I mean, I, even in my, in my column on Sona, made it clear that 
Forget the fact that he's a polygamist. Forget the fact that there's all this other stuff. He is our president at the moment. That's what our focus needs to be on. We really need to focus on what he's done in the previous five mm-hmm. years and what he's doing in the next five years after mm-hmm. that. Uh, what I'm really concerned by is the fact that when you take the Constitution and you throw it out the window, and that's what happened on that day. There's no two ways about it. Then we need to start holding mm-hmm. uh, you know, power to account. No matter how charming he is. Because, you know, unfortunately, guys that, that beat the living daylights out of their wives are very charming guys them, themselves. Mm. You know, the day after they buy the roses and they buy the chocolates and they say they'll never do it again and they cry and they do all kinds, you know, and, and go and watch Fifty Shades of Grey, for goodness sake, you know? But so the problem is how, how do we do it? But, um, because when it comes to the next election and the ANC gets voted in again, mm. it's almost a, it's almost a but, endorsement of that. But can you see what my pro- problem is? is that it's mm. also part of the South African thinking is we're waiting for the next mm. elections mm. to come. Mm. That's not how it's supposed to work. Constitutionality mm. needs to be protected throughout uh, you know, the term. So I'm not too sure exactly myself, yeah. Simon. Um, I know maybe I should know this, but I'm surely <laughs> someone, and, and I know, you know. Maybe <laughs> seems to be good at raising problems. Yeah, and, and we're not so hot with solutions. No, no, but what I'm saying is someone needs to take yeah. this matter through to at least the constitutional yeah. court. I know that the Human Rights Commission is looking into one or two of these things. A finding needs to be made and it needs to be held to. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I think it needs to be no, stopped. You are absolutely what right. I'm just saying is, is that I think as a citizenry, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the opposition, and I couldn't care less who does this, but someone needs to take this uh, a, bit, a step further. And, and but, and but I don't think people are just sitting on their hands and sort of saying, look, he violated the rules of parliament and the constitution. Well, he, the ANC mm-hmm. and the presiding officers of parliament, you know, there's no one who can really put the finger on and said they have completely mm. done the wrong thing yet, you know, except for ha- perhaps the National Intelligence Agency that um, the parliament has admitted that jammed jam the signal. Yeah. Um, but people have gone to court. They went to court on the, on the signal jamming issue. They, they went to court on the, on the issue of um, the parliamentary feed, the TV channel, mm. not, not showing the ruckus in, mm. in parliament. And, and there looks like and seems to be other court action going on with, with some of the, the police officers entering the house. So I think, we, we often in South African society, we, we jump to the courts quite quickly, and I think it's a good thing. It can be a negative thing sometimes, but people do take action. I think the difficult thing with President Zuma and and the ANC as it is under President Zuma, just like this conversation, we jump between either scandal, so it's either Nkandla, it's either his corruption charges, it's either the rape case, um, or any any of these, or, or Parliament as it was. Mm. Or, or that, oh, it's okay now, he's, he's, he seems a bit better, or the ANC is doing a bit better. Yep. We, we seem to either jump between the two, and yeah. then in between, I think we often struggle to actually make sure that the state is working, looking at, looking at exactly. actual, actual state policies and, and ensuring that, um, state-owned enterprises are running, although there is quite a focus on them. Um, and, and, and we fail to ensure that the, ensure that the rule of law is really take place, taking place. So I think we need to <laughs> they would just help us all, huh? <laughs> just ask Zuma's wife. I'm sure she can, she can provide. Okay, guys, this one is going to be coming up a bit. So, okay, let's, let's give this no more than one minute. Should we pay any attention to the allegations that Zuma was poisoned by his wife? Is there, is there any merit here? Legitimate story. Is, is can, this worth can, paying any attention? Can I say no? Yeah. Is that, <laughs> it's, no, obviously we have to. There's, it, it's, there's reports that, the president's wife yeah. tried to poison him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I think I don't think we can ignore it, okay. but I think there are other there are also other things going on, which which this particular wife was already she was being under um, reports that she was being pushed out of out of so the presidency and her yeah. and the home she was staying in things like that. So there are other things going on in there, but 
And so obviously we have to take into account, and if it, if it t- does turn out to be true, it's just a very serious issue, and, and it's quite yeah, sure. worrying that this guy's our president if, if his wife's trying to kill him. <laughs> the, 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 although the timing does seem suspicious, because suddenly all the attention is off Zona, and mm. it's on this plot where Zuma is the victim and not mm. the perpetrator for once. I mean, mm. I, and, we're, and we're not talking about the, the rumors and allegations that, that his wife was perhaps, um, was perhaps cheating on him as well. So... I mean, but as as assuming this is a is a plot to take the the attention off Sona, does this actually does this bode well for the president? It seems that he didn't particularly know he was poisoned, and his medical team didn't know it was discovered in America. And it's, it, it was in Russia. It, wasn't it, it? Russia. Yeah. I think it was yeah. both. I'm not it, both. It's both. Yeah, I think it was both. Yeah. It was both. Okay, so he got. <laughs> he didn't he believe got, the Americans. Then he went to the Russians. So I mean, this, <laughs> it, it's, it sounds more ridiculous than anything else. <laughs> no, or maybe that's, that's. I, it. Wonder, I have this image of like uh, some medieval food. You know, they used to, the kings used to have food tasters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is Azuma going to have one of those from now Maggie, on? Maggie, Maggie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just check out. <laughs> just check out this long stale for me. Maybe that's how he keeps control of cabinet. You know. Yeah, if, if we see someone rise very quickly, you know, to a ministerial position or something like that. That's the food test. Maybe, maybe we know, yeah. <laughs> okay, but, we, we can't give the story to, back to anymore. The yes, please, I think yes, there please. were other issues raised apart from, apart from Zoom, Zuma's reply and, and Musi Maimani's scathing response. One of the highlights for me, just because it was so funny, was the higher education minister, Bladen Zamandis, um, he, he finished off the debates for the ANC. And he just had, he's like the king of one-liners. Do you remember when the when the Democratic Alliance turned up to Sona all wearing black? Yeah. Mm. First of all, he said, "Oh, I thought I arrived on the scene of a Dracula movie." <laughs> <laughs> then, then he said, "You, you must never wear black in this house again, unless you're you're at the funeral of white minority rule." He <laughs> <laughs> was he was on fire. And yeah, then then he nice. says then he says to Julius Malema, um, "Don't start something in this house that you can't finish." Oh yeah, and let's, obviously let's, let's Julius gets outraged. That's a threat, and there's a little bit of a standoff again in Parliament. But for for entertainment value, it was gold. Ten out of ten. I, I okay. loved it. Okay, so you weren't watching the Grammys. You you were squarely on. The, on the, <laughs> this is more exciting. You were, uh, <laughs> but where's the conversation on policy? I mean, there was some there was yeah. some conversations about the land holdings bill, but that seemed to be more like a conversation about who who owns the Freedom Charter, really. Um, Julia seems to want royalties for any mention or application of, of the Freedom Charter. And so still, we're not talking about the there bill. Was, there was some discussion on that. Okay, at least at least yeah. Jacob Zimmer cleared up that well, we still don't know the specific details, yeah. you know, because they say it's going to be worked out. But on the land holding holdings bill, which has been has been in the news because it's it's it, it could end up uh, meaning that foreigners won't own, can't won't be able to own land, which is obviously quite a polemic issue. Uh, Zuma did say that it, it will be. I think it was Zuma that said that it will be. Well, anyway, it was one of, one of the ANC members um, that said that no, it will, it will apply to agricultural land, yeah, okay. and it will, it will be over a certain number of hectares. So your random um, executive at Anglo American, who's now living in you know in Johannesburg, I don't think they're going to take his Santon house. You know, mm. but so, there was a very interesting conversation that followed that one um, mm. in terms of Becky Trele's interpretation of what agricultural land yeah. is, um, and and I think that what part of the problem is in the bill. Which is another, you know, what I'm talking about in terms of maintaining the rule of law and constitutionality mm. is that it, it, it's, it remains in the minister's discretion what is classified as agricultural land. Mm. Which will obviously, and, I think, be tested under law. Mm. Yeah. If, if they publish it as that, it's obviously going to, they're going to yeah. either try to do something or someone will just take it yeah. to court. Because yeah. assuming, I mean, uh, you know, uh, going back to that example of that Anglo American executive that maybe, mm. I don't know, writes a funny 
op-ed in, yeah. in the Daily Maverick and yeah. then suddenly falls out of favor. Mm. Does his house in the middle or, you know, property in the middle of Santon suddenly become agricultural land? You know, so, so obviously that's, that's the type of protections that need to be built into this. Mm. I mm. think that it needs a constitutionality test. I, I think all bulls do, but I, yeah, I, I think, I think it'll be a long process with this one. Just, yeah. just considering how, how it's, it's in such a heated environment. The land issue is a huge, mm. huge issue. And, and, and people, and there's also the issue of foreigners owning land, things like mm-hmm. that, the, the Chinese coming in buying, you know, all over the world, buying agricultural land. Well, the other bit on that, um, was, yeah. was the limit on land mm. purchases or land ownership to 12,000 hectares, yes. which isn't that much. It's like a, it's a medium to large farm, but it's not, you know, a super in terms big of farm. farm. Um, so I haven't heard much about how that is going to be applied. Are, are, are big farming corporations going to have to downscale? They'll have yeah. to lease so, their land. So I think, the, and, and also there's the 50-50 ownership between the, the who are now the farm owners and the farm workers. Mm. So that's also something that's coming into play. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, just quickly on that, the, 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 the bill seems to want to apply that to long-term workers who've been there for a long time, which doesn't do very much because a lot of farm workers are seasonal and come in every mm, now and then. That's true. So I think we're still seeing quite a few quite a few things in the landholders bill that are not quite there yet. Gashwa. Radical land change. Can I just mention one, one acronym? Oh boy. Yeah. For me, this is a response to the EFF. Yep. The EFF came yeah, out, they radical, sure. ah, we're going to take the land. The ANC has been sitting since 1994 uh, looking at the situation of land and not really doing much, not having made much uh, progress in that field. So guess what? I guess someone at some stage said, you know, the, amongst the six NEC members, that, guys, maybe we should start talking about this land thing a little more seriously. And credit, credit to the EFF for that. Putting it on the agenda. It's something that South Africa needs desperately. And if, if Julius can... Force things into action. Yeah, for sure. But now, but now I think what, what we have to hap- what has to happen is, because obviously the EFF's raised this very heated issue, and it's, it's an issue that can get votes. By, by having a strong mm. stance on the land issue, you can get votes, and now we see the ANC responding by trying to take the action of their own. The worry is that, that we may not get, get something that, that's passed or comes through that's actually thought through well enough, you know. Yeah. We might just get, you know, the EFF's raised uh, as the ANC in, in government. We also need to step up and do something on this issue and put, put through a bill that isn't thought through well enough. We need we need radical land transformation within the country. And I don't necessarily mean radical in, in the way Julius Malema sees it, but we need transformation in terms of ownership of the land. And we need that to be done properly and well, and it never has been in South Africa. Um, Greg, thank you for that. Unfortunately, we are now out of time. I think we need to really sort of... Uh, uh, set aside a whole hour for this topic So maybe in the coming weeks we'll have a, a full sort of land Dig in Ooh, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> on that note A big thank you to everyone in studio Gushville Brooks, Simon Allison, Greg Nicholson A big thank you and we'll see you next week Thanks for joining us Thanks awesome. for having us